Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. And uh, before we get going today, I just want to say this is, uh, I think, our second week on the Jacobin Radio podcast feed. So we're pretty bad at promoting the show, but I just wanted to say quickly that if you found us through there uh, and you like the show, you can find our entire back catalog on Spotify, at SoundCloud, a friendly neighborhood podcast app near you. Uh, We also have a Patreon where there's bonus content and uh, where we also put a paywalled episode every other week. So uh, check us out there too. Boy, iTunes, Spotify, it's a brave new world out there. Uh, But I would like to talk briefly about an older brand, Blockbuster Video. Something that came on my radar this week was the reemergence of Blockbuster as kind of a nostalgia brand. I saw that the official Blockbuster Twitter account has been active. They got some engagement. And also the last Blockbuster store in America. And it always seems like there's a last Blockbuster store in America. I feel like for years I've been hearing about a different last Blockbuster in America. But whichever it is, they're holding a sleepover party, like a slumber party that people can join, which is strange to me because the experience of sleeping at a retail store is not something I'm particularly nostalgic for. But I guess they're tapping into the feeling of like renting a video when you were a kid and having a sleepover and watching the video. Long-time listeners will know that we're fans of Wet Movie 1 and Cool Duder, the YouTube personalities, and (laughs) we saw a YouTube video where Wet Movie 1 went to a Blockbuster pop-up store in downtown Los Angeles, and he got, like, Blockbuster stickers and Blockbuster t-shirts and Blockbuster keychains, you know, just with that iconic blue and yellow logo, and I hate this. I really don't like this, because, (laughs) like, Blockbuster was was shit. Yeah, I mean, isn't postmodern capitalism incredible? I mean, first of all, who cares about Blockbuster? I mean, it was a particularly shitty version of a now defunct business model, you know, the video rental and later, I suppose, the DVD rental store. Blockbuster, of course, was also famous for being censorious, right? For not stocking certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of movies. Oh, yeah. There are certain kinds of movies that if they stocked them, like Bad Lieutenant, they had to cut 10 minutes out of it for Blockbuster to stock it. Or anything with an NC-17 rating, they wouldn't let in the store. So they'd have to create alternate versions. Right. And so even, you know, putting all of that aside, just the idea that capitalism is able to monetize the, you know, aging detritus of its, you know, like Blockbuster is part of the secret elephant graveyard of capitalism where when sufficient time has passed, even failed commercial enterprises can be monetized anew because everything really is a commodity. Well, people, I think, are right to be nostalgic for video stores to a degree, Video stores were communal spaces. They were spaces where people could meet and discover things and shape each other's taste and what have you. And some of that is lost in the streaming age. I mean, an advantage of the streaming age is you can watch, you know, uh, the Avengers without having to go to a goddamn store to get it. But I think if there's nostalgia for the video store, it really ought to be for the mom and pop video store, the place that had some curatorial eye that had its own identity. American listeners, and I suppose just listeners of outside of Toronto in general, won't uh, won't know it, but uh, there was a great store not far from where I uh, where I live called Suspect Video, uh, a place I know you frequented a lot. Uh, that's the kind of place that I'm comfortable saying 
something I'm nostalgic for. I remember in one of my first weeks of university going to Suspect Video and I was looking through their superhero section and I found the Filipino version of Batman, you know, a a bootleg, low-budget superhero comedy. And it just kind of blew my mind that not only did this exist, but it it was in a video store. And, you know, that's, I guess, kind of a lowbrow example of the kind of discovery you could make at Suspect. It genuinely expanded my horizons, expanded my perspective of what a movie even is, what qualifies as a movie. Going back to Blockbuster for a second, it seems that this kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, nostalgia porn is everywhere these days. There's a statute of limitations on whether you can bring back something, you can relaunch a film franchise, a corporate brand uh, that's defunct, whatever, kind of varies depending on the item in question. But what I don't understand about bringing back something like Blockbuster is why the brand itself needs to be the object of your nostalgia. Because thinking about my own experience and my own history with Blockbuster, I'm the target audience for this. Uh, I grew up in rural Ontario, not even a small town, just, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, once or twice a week, uh, my parents would cart me over to the bustling metropolis of uh, Woodstock, Ontario, uh, also known as the dairy capital of Canada, a title I suspect Woodstock may have given itself. And we would go to, uh, among other places, the Blockbuster, which did feel like this kind of, it felt practically cosmopolitan to me as a kid. Uh, You know, you could get uh, the latest Jim Carrey movie, you know, you could get the latest Adam Sandler movie. I think the brand is just an easy thing to project a lot of different memories and disparate feelings and emotions onto, you know? I guess that is it. It gives all of those disparate feelings some some structure. I guess that's true. I, I guess I just still don't really understand why something like this has mass appeal. I'm not saying it's not tragic. <laughs> Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right. Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video. ...is popping up all over the country. Well, it's been a big week for the Biden campaign. Kamala Harris was confirmed as the vice presidential nominee. And uh, Biden, I keep hearing, is the new FDR. So I'm, I gotta say, I'm pretty chuffed about that. That's pretty cool, huh? So this is something that's been annoying me for months, and uh, I think I've actually alluded to it in several of my Jacobin pieces. Beginning, I guess, around the time when Bernie was was dropping out, when his campaign was kind of winding down, when it was really clear that, that he couldn't win. Around that time, uh, we saw the emergence of what, for me, I think is an incredibly bizarre media trope, which is this whole Biden is a 21st century FDR kind of thing. You keep hearing people say that he, he'll he be the most progressive president of your lifetime, which is which is probably true just by default, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, it depends on what is meant by a statement like that. I don't really think that's the case. I mean, it might be it, it might be true insofar as... Insofar as he's coming into the election being in favor of gay marriage. 
Right. I mean, uh, every Democratic president is the most progressive ever. If you're talking about the, you know, the kinds of language and cultural signifiers they invoke compared to the last one or something like that. I mean, I think there's increasing evidence that a Biden administration, should one occur, is not only going to not bring in a second New Deal, but it's going to be to the right of the Obama administration. Um, I think there's increasing evidence for that. But I saw some reporting earlier this week, some uh, pretty good reporting from The New York Times on Biden's courtship of Wall Street. So I finally decided to write something digging a little deeper into this whole Biden is FDR parallel, which, as I said, you know, really is is everywhere, unless you think I'm exaggerating. Here are just a few examples from the American prospects, Harold Meyerson, Biden, the 21st century FDR, uh, Matt Viser in the Washington Post. Uh, he argued that Biden, quote, appears to be drafting a blueprint for the biggest surge of government action in decades. A straightforward news report uh, in The Guardian back in May called Biden perhaps the unlikely herald of a new progressive era and probably uh, the longest piece of reporting, kind of the most uh, in-depth essay I could find on Biden after he effectively secured the nomination. It's uh, an essay in New York Magazine, I think also from May, and it was called Biden is Planning an FDR-Sized Presidency. So this thing is really everywhere. And it's interesting to consider where exactly this is coming from. I mean, the reason why this struck me as so strange from the very beginning is that it flies in the face of everything that we actually know about Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden is a figure who has always been on the kind of right wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, he's been a fan of deregulation, in addition to being a fan of mass incarceration, having pushed a whole host of reactionary social policies. But, you know, he's also somebody who is kind of famously chummy with the credit card industry, uh, which, you know, of course, has a big foothold in Delaware. Uh, he's somebody who has long practiced the kind of hallowed right wing democratic art of bashing what are supposed to be democratic constituencies. I mean, on the campaign trail for the past year, he made a habit of telling anybody who even politely questioned him to go and vote for somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. There's just nothing in Biden's career or record that suggests that he has the political instincts or reflexes or temperament to be a transformative figure in the mold of, of FDR. So I was really interested to explore where exactly this was coming from. You know, on what basis are people making this uh, this claim? And I think I've identified roughly four causes that are related. So the first is an incredibly lazy one, which is just that there's a major economic crisis underway, which is just like the Great Depression. Uh, that's one thing. So a, a simple historical parallel that really has very little to do with Biden himself. Can I ask, was Obama compared much to FDR in the early days of his presidency or during his candidacy? Because I, I don't recall that. Well, it's skipping ahead to number three, but uh, the simple answer is yes. So uh, number two, just very quickly, was that Biden has himself has sort of vaguely invoked FDR. Uh, there was an interview a few months ago where he said something about how the, the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis it's created even potentially eclipses what FDR faced. But going back to your question, every Democrat for the past 30 years at least has either invoked or been compared to FDR. Scratch that. I'm not one. I didn't look if uh, John Kerry <laughs> had been compared to FDR. But just to go through a few examples here, um, Hillary Clinton, who famously uh, ran the, according to one study, the most policy-free ad blitz in modern electoral history, uh, she prompted a piece 
Uh, this is from Vox in 2015. It's called Hillary Clinton's FDR Moment. Obama was featured on a cover on the cover of Time magazine in kind of mock FDR cosplay. Even Bill Clinton, who, as I noted in my piece, is really the Democrat who consolidated the Reaganite counter-revolution against key parts of the New Deal consensus. Uh, There's a long-form essay in Newsweek from May 1993 that's literally called Clinton as Roosevelt. And the first sentence is, to understand Bill Clinton, you, you need to recognize that he aspires to be the Franklin Roosevelt of the late 20th century. Do you know what the justification for that was? Well, as far as I can tell, the main reason why so many liberal politicians like to invoke FDR is that apart from JFK, he's kind of the most famous... He's the only other Democratic president who is still famous enough to be known primarily by his initials, right? And so, of course, if you're the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, FDR is kind of one of the two or three big reference points that you've got. I suppose Obama now being the other one. Obama, I think, kind of having replaced Clinton on that score. But I think the other thing is the New Deal itself was so successful in, you know, it it established... And, and was a new consensus in American culture and society and politics that lasted for decades. And when something is that big and successful, it kind of takes on a life of its own as a generalized cultural reference point that has less and less to do with, you know, its actual content. Going through some of these uh, these essays I just cited, you get the sense that the New Deal has just become a sort of lazy shorthand that, you know, if you're a liberal politician and you want to brand anything as kind of big and ambitious, you know, you just compare it to the New Deal. You know, announce some grotesque multi-billion dollar stimulus package that's really a giant corporate giveaway. Just name the dollar figure and say that this is a 21st century New Deal and you could probably get away with it in, you know, large quarters of the American media. I mean, very few politicians at any level, but especially American presidential politics, are ever likely to pitch their proposals as tiny and meager and pitiful and small. So every Democrat gets to be FDR and and Biden is getting his his FDR moment for that reason right now. But I think the the real reason in all this, the kind of underlying cause, apart from these bits of media criticism I just mentioned, is that there is a big psychological void that needs to be filled vis-a-vis Biden and his campaign. His appeal is really that he is an empty vessel. You know, he's someone that you can project an incredibly vague and generalized set of things onto. Uh, He is running as generic Democrat at a time when, you know, the incumbent president is incredibly unpopular, is mishandling an historic crisis um, and is, you know, killing roughly a thousand Americans a day through negligence amid spiraling unemployment and unthinkable human suffering. The Biden strategy is just to kind of coast and, you know, appear in public as minimally as possible. And the thing is, as soon as you acknowledge that, you know, as soon as that gets publicly acknowledged, I mean, it's it it's immediately a less successful strategy, right? So it's a lot easier to just say, uh, oh, but he's, he's the next FDR. I mean, look, he's going to do the public option. He's going to do, he's going to reduce carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. I hear people calling him the next FDR, but it's often the same people who in the next breath say that he's a pragmatic moderate. 
which is just as much and perhaps even more so the message of his campaign. You know, he's the guy who you vote for him because you don't want to think about politics anymore because you're so upset. Right. He's the anti-political candidate. He's the candidate for people who, after four years of Donald Trump, just want politics to be neutralized. He is the embodiment of, you know, that talking point you heard from some of the NPC candidates during the Democratic primary where, you know, Bloomberg and one of those other guys, was it Swalwell or Hickenlooper, said, you know, something to the effect of, if I'm elected president, I will never tweet and you will not have to think about me ever at all for four years. I get it. I, I can reconcile it now. While you're not thinking about him, he will be the new FDR. <laughs> the problem with Bernie is you were going to have to think about politics under him. <laughs> Which is just too exhausting. If, if Bernie was president, uh, we'd have to skip brunch. <laughs> But lastly on this, what is so extraordinary about the Biden is FDR narrative is that he has told us again and again and again explicitly that he is not FDR. I mean, probably the most famous or at least one of the most famous things FDR ever said was in the famous Madison Square Garden speech in October 1936, right? Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They're unanimous in their hatred for me and I welcome their hatred. Joe Biden, just about a year ago at the Carlisle Hotel, which just to complete the symbolism here is, of course, in New York's Upper East Side. I mean, one of the... Oh, I know the Carlisle Hotel. It's where Woody Allen plays clarinet every Monday night. (laughs) I, I don't think I knew that. Anyways, it was at the Carlisle Hotel that just about a year ago, Joe Biden infamously said... Uh, We may not want to demonize anyone who's made money. Uh, If I'm elected president, no one's standard of living will change. Nothing fundamentally would change. I mean, that is about as far from the sensibility that, that carried, you know, FDR's campaigns in the 30s as you can get. More recently, Biden, at one of his uh, you know, these virtual fundraisers that he's holding with uh, with you know corporate donors, he talked about how corporate America needs to quote change its ways, uh, and then in the same breath or a few breaths later, said uh, the solution won't be a legislative one. So there's no there's no legislation. It's just sort of like it's you know Joe Biden is going to go to the worst malefactors on Wall Street and say, "Come on, man." You know, that's that's what uh, his FDR sized presidency is going to look like. Well, speaking of FDR, let's travel back to FDR's time. That is the corniest one you've maybe ever done. (laughs) (laughs) And and what time would that be? Well, it would be modern times. The Charlie Chaplin classic. I don't know. Just put his fingers up to his temple and uh, blasted as if firing a gun. (laughs) Chaplin the Great returns in modern times, a truly great film. You are looking at scenes from that film classic, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Back, section five, more speed. Charlie Chaplin. Who else but Charlie Chaplin can make us howl with laughter or move us to tears?
Well, it's kind of a running joke on the show that Will has become a master. He's long been a master at incredibly awkward hackneyed segues. And I think that one ranks among the best of them. But yeah, that wasn't a bit. We did watch Charlie Chaplin's uh, Modern Times. I thought it would be topical kind of for obvious reasons. But in addition to that, I did think it would be good to alert any new listeners we may have picked up via the Jacobin feed to the fact that we do also watch good movies on this podcast. This isn't a straightforward, we watch a bad lib film and make fun of it podcast. Although we also do a lot of that. So Charlie Chaplin is someone who I think we've done two episodes about already. And we were kind of itching to do him again. And this seemed like a good time. I think of all the really canonical filmmakers, you know, your criterion collection (laughs) filmmakers, he might be the most universally accessible. He's somebody who everybody can love and understand. Some of that, I think, has to do with the extraordinary precision and complexity of the physical comedy he did, which anybody can appreciate. But there's also the fact that in his work, he addressed such basic things, you know, being cold, being hungry, being poor, and the shame of being poor. There's a scene early on in his movie, The Kid, where he's walking in an alley and he pulls out a cigarette case and he opens it. And in that cigarette case are a bunch of cigarette butts that he's clearly picked up off the street, you know, lined together. But it's important for the tramp that he have a fancy looking cigarette case, you know, to keep up appearances. Chaplin famously grew up poor. He famously had a very Dickensian childhood. He spent a year or two in a workhouse, which is not where you want to be in the 1890s. Father drank himself to death. His mother lost her mind and spent his teenage years in what were then called madhouses. He was saved by vaudeville. And one of the things that I think makes him really great is, more than almost any artist, he really harnessed those feelings of of not just unhappiness, but, but shame, and used them in his art. As I was watching Modern Times this week, I was reminded that there came a point in the 60s and 70s when Buster Keaton became more fashionable among critics, Buster Keaton being, you know, the other great silent clown. And Keaton's films, which, of course, I also love, Keaton is, case can be made, is as good a filmmaker as Chaplin, but he did a lot of very interesting experiments with the camera and was very interested in the film form itself. And both Keaton and his films were working at a much cooler temperature than Chaplin's, which are so sentimental. Um, And I don't think Keaton was interested in the same sorts of issues that Chaplin was. You know, Keaton himself said that his characters tended to be middle class and they tended to have a strong work ethic, while Chaplin's did not have a strong work ethic. In fact, Chaplin's characters often hated the idea of work. And I think the way that Keaton surpassed Chaplin in certain intellectual or certain film theory and criticism circles speaks a little bit, you know, without without knocking Keaton, who I love, but speaks a little bit to the classes that those disciplines and discourses tend to attract. Now, we've had to kind of rejig things a couple times because of technical difficulties during the recording of this episode. Wells had to change rooms a few times and amusingly... In uh, two out of the three rooms uh, he's been in, including the one he's in now, there's at least one piece of Charlie Chaplin paraphernalia visible uh, (laughs) through my webcam. Uh, Right now I can see the spine of what looks like an autobiography or a biography. And in the other room, I think you had two separate Chaplin posters. (laughs) Well, I had a Monsieur Verdoux poster and I had a lobby card for an impersonator of Charlie Chaplin's named Billy West, who was the most prolific and and the best Chaplin. 
Chaplin impersonator of the 1910s. And that speaks to how popular he was in the 1910s, that there was a flourishing industry of impersonators who made films. Well, Will is an expert on many strange and and eccentric things, but impersonators of people he likes is one of my favorite, because uh, in addition to knowing a lot about Charlie Chaplin impersonators, I once saw you give a lecture on Bruce Lee impersonators. Well, I've also also visited the home of the famous Elvis tribute artist, Gene DiNapoli. That's somebody who the real heads will know. (laughs) Anyway, you know an awful lot about uh, Charlie Chaplin, and... you know, I'm very keen also, you mentioned Monsieur Verdoux. Uh, we should really do that one sometime because uh, that is certainly a lesser known Charlie Chaplin movie. And I think might be his most overtly political one. I mean, I suppose it depends on what we mean by political. Modern Times, uh, which we watched this week, is in many ways a very political film, although uh, it seems like a lot of the debate and discussion around it uh, for decades has been about uh, kind of how didactic it's supposed to be. how And to, to what extent it's a political film. That's right. Whereas I think Monsieur Verdoux is sort of a, in some ways, a straightforward you know, anti-30s austerity film. Maybe that's a little reductive, but that's my memory of it. Um, And it's also great because, um, I mean, you know, Chaplin's silent films are great, but, you know, Monsieur Verdoux is not a silent film, and it's great to see Chaplin in that kind of medium, too. Before we get into the politics of modern times, let's just go a little bit over the plot and the form of the film. It's from 1936, which is well into the sound era. It's Chaplin's last silent film, although there are some some moments with dialogue and sound effects. Now, uh, he, he reportedly was kind of a skeptic of sound, right? City Lights was released during the sound era, but is, is silent. He was a skeptic, and I, I think probably a lot of that had to do with just the fact that he wasn't sure how a, a physical comedian like him and how a character like the Tramp would adapt to the medium. I mean, once he started making sound films, he couldn't shut the guy up. But this is a mostly silent film, and it's the last film to feature the tramp in kind of an undiluted form. It takes a very episodic, perhaps even kaleidoscopic structure. The first section takes place in a factory that's ruled over by a Henry Fordish owner, where Charlie is just one of the many assembly line workers. And the grueling labor that he's made to do pushes him into a nervous breakdown. Following that, he spends some time in prison, which ironically, is a place where he's much happier and more comfortable than in the normal working world, and he seeks to go back to it. Along the way, he meets a kindred spirit, a young woman played by Paulette Godard, known only as the Gamine. She's also a tramp of sorts, and they form what what seems to be a platonic alliance to take on the world. They bounce around to a couple of different jobs and spaces. There's a section of the movie where together they try to create something like a domestic life. They they fantasize about a middle-class life, and they end up trying to do it in a little shack by the river. He tries to work as a factory worker. She tries to work as a dancer at a cafe. He tries to work as a waiter. For various reasons, they're foiled. They can never keep a job. He's a he's a shipbuilder as well. A, a very short scene that leads to, I think, one of the funniest parts of the movie, where the entire ship that's beat, the hull of this like ship that's under construction just sinks down a causeway into the water while all his fellow workers look on appalled. And then he just calmly puts his hat back on and waddles away. <laughs> 
they work for a night at a department store. And one of the things I like about the movie is these two tramps are not really revolutionaries. They fantasize about having an ordinary or even a luxurious middle class life. When they're in the department store, they love all the stuff and they wish they can afford it. When they have their little shack, they're burlesquing at trying to live an ordinary middle class life. One of the most famous scenes of the movie sees the tramp pick up a red flag that's been dropped off the back of a cart and he starts waving it, trying to get the the car's attention. And then right behind him, a, a communist parade forms and he gets arrested because he's seen to be the leader of this communist parade. You have a quote from a Graham Greene review uh, published at the time of the film's release where he gets into the politics of the film, which, as you mentioned, were were then and still are debated. Yeah, so I'm bringing this up, uh, I think, partly because I'm a little skeptical of it, and I also want to know what you think. This was published in The Spectator, the conservative newspaper. I, I assume it was a conservative newspaper as well in 1936. He praises the movie but he's able to praise it only because he has a rather conservative, uh, you know, what I think is a rather conservative interpretation of it. And in one paragraph, he kind of dismisses the idea that there's anything leftist about modern times. Unemployment and prison punctuate his life, starvation and lucky breaks, and somewhere in its course he attaches to himself the other piece of human refuse. The Marxists, I suppose, will claim this is their film, but is a good deal less and a good deal more than socialist in intention. No real political passion has gone to it. The police batter the little man at one moment and feed him with buns the next. And there is no warm maternal optimism in the Mitchison manner about the character of the workers. When the police are brutes, the men are cowards. The little man is always left in the lurch. Nor do we find him wondering what a socialist man should do, but dreaming of a steady job in the most bourgeois home. Mr. Chaplin, whatever his political convictions may be, is an artist and not a propagandist. He doesn't try to explain but prevents with vivid fantasy what seems to him a crazy, comic, tragic world without a plan, but his sketch of the inhuman factory does not lead us to suppose that his little man would be more at home in Dnipostroy, which is a city in Russia, which I'm assuming I'm butchering the pronunciation. Any Russians listening, please forgive me. Uh, he presents, he doesn't offer political solutions. So, you know, this is one reading of the film. I mean, I couldn't help notice that uh, elsewhere, the, the official magazine of the British Liberal Party called it, among other things, a first-class piece of liberal propaganda. In Nazi Germany, the film was banned because it was seen as, you know, communist and subversive. So criticism of modern times, you might say, is a land of contrast. I have my own opinions about this, but I'm curious what you think. I'll tell you what Chaplin said says in his own autobiography published in the 1960s, and I think you will be disappointed by it because he devotes all of two pages of this 500-page book to modern times. And the two paragraphs relevant to the film's politics say, I remembered an interview I had with a bright young reporter on the New York world. Hearing that I was visiting Detroit, he had told me of the factory belt system there, a harrowing story of big industry luring healthy young men off the farms who, after four or five years at the belt system, become nervous wrecks. And then, a couple of paragraphs later, he writes, Before the opening of modern times, a few columnists wrote that they had heard rumors the picture was communistic. I suppose this was because of a summary of the story that had already appeared in the press. However, the liberal reviewers wrote that it was neither for nor against communism, and that metaphorically I had sat on the fence. 
that's the extent of what he says about the politics of the film. And I wonder how much of that is just coming from a man who had basically been red baited out of the country and didn't want to talk about politics anymore. Why don't you say a little more about that history? Because I think that's an important detail of Chaplin's life. Chaplin was the first movie personality who was really taken seriously by intellectuals, Marxists and surrealists in particular, but all over the world. And he sought out the company of everyone from Einstein to Churchill to Brecht, uh, Hans Eisler was a friend. Not all of those people are leftists, but he definitely gravitated towards the company of leftists. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a file of him in the FBI where he called him a parlor Bolsheviki. I don't know if Chaplin himself would have identified as a communist. I think Chaplin was probably a little bit too rich to, to be a communist. But I think the work speaks for itself. I agree with Graham Greene that he's more of an artist than an intellectual. And I think when he overtly tried to be an intellectual, his politics could be a little bit incoherent. Um, I'm thinking of the final speech of the great dictator, which is a wonderful speech in many ways. Although I think there have been more sophisticated political speeches. It's like, you know, it goes back and forth between him saying, let us all unite, and also you're all individuals. You know, like, like which is it? Nevertheless, I think by the time he got to Monsieur Verdoux, which is, I think, a pretty radically anti-capitalist movie, he was pretty heavily influenced by people like Brecht, you know, and the other socialist-leaning writers and thinkers that he was hanging out with. And, you know, he was somebody who never got the humiliation and pain of poverty out of his system. And he had what some would call noblesse oblige. He definitely felt a responsibility to tell the working man's story through his art. Perhaps the most famous image in this film, I suppose, besides, you know, the scene where he picks up the flag, is one that I've had as my cover photo on Twitter for many years. And it's the one where he's sucked into the machine. And in very Brechtian fashion, you see him, the worker, pulled through the cogs of the factory machine. And obviously that is some very heavy handed symbolism, or at least it's very simple and straightforward symbolism. It's not difficult to understand. But to me, you know, it's so it's so overt that it gives me pretty strong feelings about, you know, where the sympathies of the film ultimately lie, despite uh, the complications that Graham Greene, among others, have introduced. And I don't think there's ever been a more class-conscious filmmaker than him. I don't think there's anybody who was so uncompromising in depicting class stratification as humiliating and unjust, and work itself as humiliating and unjust and exploitative. Like, there's a scene in this movie, Modern Times, another one of the famous scenes, early on when the owner of the factory is testing out this thing, the feeding machine. And the idea is that this machine, if you strap it on to the worker at the assembly line, they won't need a lunch hour. They'll be able to have their lunch fed to them while they're still doing their, their labor. And the feeding machine goes haywire. It beats the tramp mercilessly. It leaves the tramp on the ground. And then the scene ends with the factory owner saying, uh, it's no good. It, it just isn't practical. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there's a, a scene around the same time, I think just before, when he tries to go to the bathroom and uh, his Henry Ford-esque boss uh, kind of comes to him via telescreen in the bathroom and tells him to get back to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, the message is pretty obvious, it seems to yeah. me. And I guess just lastly on this point, I mean, there's also the, the fact that the film does sort of introduce itself as a political film. The title card at the beginning reads, Modern Times, a story of industry, of individual enterprise, humanity crusading in the pursuit of happiness. 
I think that beginning very much announces the film as, as a political one, although I also think it very clearly exhibits the same contradiction you highlighted in the famous Great Dictator speech. Chaplin isn't always sure what he thinks about the relationship between individuals and the collective. And right there on that title card at the start of the film, he talks about individual enterprise, but then also humanity. So the collectivity of all human beings crusading in the pursuit of happiness. The phrase, the pursuit of happiness, famously appearing in what is probably the most famous credo of Republican individualism, you know, life, liberty, and. So I'll grant that there is an ambiguity to uh, this film in terms of, you know, I, I'm not sure anybody has really claimed that it's prescriptive, but given the overt symbolism, particularly at the very beginning and the fact that the film uh, sort of announces itself as political, I don't think I can really concur with Graham Greene's reading of it. His reading is a little too ambiguous for me. As we're talking about him, I realize that one of the things that makes Chaplin compelling to me as an artist is that he was both a poor boy who never forgot the poverty and a rich man who loved being rich and didn't want to go back to being poor, but also felt a certain amount of guilt about being rich. I think that brings tension and texture to some of his films. In Monsieur Verdu, he plays this well-to-do middle-class bank manager who gets laid off during the Great Depression and then to maintain his lifestyle, uh, supposedly su to support his wife and child, but really to maintain his lifestyle, he embarks on a career as a bluebeard, marrying and murdering rich widows for their money. And the point of the film is that, you know, if, if he's treated expendably by capitalism, he'll take that to his logical extreme and he'll start treating other people expendably too. And I think part of the greatness of that film comes to the fact that Verdu is both like monstrous and also somebody who Chaplin clearly identifies with and empathizes with strongly because Chaplin was the most famous man in the world and he greatly feared being knocked off his pedestal uh, as he was around the time that Monsieur Verdu came out. I said earlier that I think Chaplin is maybe the most accessible of the canonical directors, and I'm sometimes sad that I think in the minds of many, he's either sort of a figure of history or just a free-floating signifier. I'm going to read a bit from an essay published by Jay Hoberman in The Village Voice in 1989. It's called After the Gold Rush, Chaplin at 100, which I think gets at something interesting about Chaplin's political meaning and the ways it has been interpreted and obscured over the years. I'll read just a couple of paragraphs from it. He writes, Although Chaplin has been encrusted with sentimentality, much of it his own doing, and relegated to the realm of the timeless, he is and was a historical being. In the late 60s, when I came of age as a self-conscious moviegoer, Chaplin was being displaced by a revisionist reappreciation of Buster Keaton. Back then, Keaton's formalism and reflexiveness, his stylized cool and absence of sentiment, seemed far more interesting than Chaplin's puppy-dog, in-your-face humanism and crude theatricality. The icon obscured the artist. Chaplin's well-worn divinity concealed the radical nature of his enterprise, the degree to which his pre-1919 two-reelers thrive on urban chaos and visceral class awareness, the wobbly esprit de corps that infuses his hatred of work, which he continually subverts and transforms into sport. He later concludes the essay with, The subversion of public order, the potential for anarchy, was inextricably bound up in the Chaplin persona. He always found a way up authority's nose. But all of this is forgotten now. On the 100th anniversary of Chaplin's birth, his progeny are everywhere and nowhere. 
As Gary Wills pointed out, Ronnie and Nancy mimed the last shot of modern times, embellished with an affectionately Chaplin-esque kick to the butt in New Morning in America, the movie shown to the world at the 1984 Republican Convention. Chaplin at 100 has become a free-floating image and an all-purpose-esque, familiar now because he was familiar then. He is a neutral symbol of the information age, a million-dollar trademark licensed to IBM to make their personal computers seem user-friendly. Leasing the Little Tramp's image from their heirs, IBM upgraded his wardrobe and occupational status, a floppy little yuppie for the age of Reagan. That's an incredible uh, quote from Hoberman. I really hope we can get him uh, on the show sometime. His book of essays, Film After Film, is definitely one of the ur-texts of the, the Michael and Us podcast. It'd be great to discuss that with him. But I was struck in that quote that you just read, how much the phenomenon he's describing uh, vis-a-vis Chaplin mirrors the phenomenon I described earlier with the New Deal. It's incredible that whether we're talking about, you know, historical figures or a political consensus that lasted for decades, that once something sufficiently percolates into the public imagination, into society, into culture, you know, it eventually becomes so diffuse that it can actually mean anything. You know, IBM can claim Charlie Chaplin, uh, just like Joe Biden can claim the New Deal. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. If you smile through your fear and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow. You'll find your fear and sorrow smile for you. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness. Although a tear may be ever so near that's the time you must keep on trying smile what's the use of crying you'll find that life is still worthwhile if you Drive.